Welcome to Pep Talks, Pepper Jam's affiliate marketing podcast. Today, we are joined by founder of Mott & Bow, Alejandro Shaheen, who's here to give us his take on the affiliate marketing channel. My name's Katie Sperkland, and I oversee product marketing here at Pepper Jam. And my name is Mara Smith. I lead marketing on behalf of Pepper Jam. If you haven't yet, I'd like to tell our listeners to take a beat and subscribe to Pep Talks so that you automatically receive updates on our new episodes. Or better yet, fire off a review and tell us what you think. Your reviews will help us continue to get exciting guests like the ones we have today. And joining us today is Alejandro Shaheen of Mountain Bow. He's the founder of Direct-to-Consumer Brand, um, born from the question, how can we get people premium-grade jeans at a reasonable price? The brand plays on its 32-year denim heritage, sourcing the finest denim fabrics from the best mills in the world and sticking to simplicity and their core design philosophy. Hi, Alejandro. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're excited that you're here today. Yes, thank you. So we can just dive right in. Why don't you tell us about how Martin Bao got started? You uh, summed it up pretty well in the intro. I like premium stuff, specifically jeans, and I was tired of overpaying for them. I used to buy jeans that were around $250, and uh, my family's been in denim manufacturing since the 80s. Uh, so when I came to the States, I saw the direct-to-consumer revolution that was happening, and I uh, realized I could do better because we already had the supplies I figured out since my family had been doing that for a long time, and I grew up in it. Uh, and I decided to launch uh, Ma and Bao uh, in 2014 to allow consumers to get premium quality denim uh, without having to overpay so we're selling our jeans uh, around $100. So between 96 to 128 is our price point. And since we've expanded into other product categories with the same premise. Uh, so then we went into t-shirts and now sweaters. Uh, and we've continued growing since. Okay, that was that was a really great rundown of the whole entire, I feel like you answered a bunch of our questions that you had right there. So I want to take a second and just sort of like take a step back to the beginning. So um, when you said you said you came to the States and you started the business, but we saw that you um, actually have an engineering degree and then you went to NYU. So what was your initial career plan and what made you pivot back into the family business? I really didn't have a plan laid out. I just knew that um, I liked uh, industrial engineering because it had a mix of operations, manufacturing, and business. Uh, and since I was coming from a family that had several manufacturing businesses, that was a good fit. Uh, and then my first job out of college was engineering focus, and I knew I didn't want to do that for the long term. Uh, so I knew I wanted to develop uh, further, and that's how I got my MBA at NYU, and that's when I came to the States for a second time. Very cool. So I think I, I had one question that I wanted to ask about the business and how it got started. So I saw and heard on another interview that um, Mott and Bao actually had a Kickstarter campaign. Um, I, I was curious if you could elaborate on this experience. Was this the initial step for launching Mott and Bao, or did this happen sort of down the road after you had already... 
um, launch the brand. So that's an interesting story. Kickstarter is usually um, people do a video and then uh, based on what they sell, they go out and manufacture uh, that demand. Uh, but for me, it was the other way around. We already had manufactured the product and my website was delayed by a month. Um, oh, geez. So we didn't want to stay there just uh, with our arms crossed. So I decided let's do a Kickstarter uh, and launch. Um, so that's what we did. In hindsight, uh, it was a big missed opportunity because I hadn't done the research at Kickstarter. So we sold a small amount. I've seen brands do tremendous amounts if you plan it correctly with influencers and uh, the right seating. And obviously we didn't have that planned. Uh, so uh, that was our start, but we delivered like a month after or maybe like three weeks after the Kickstarter campaign ended. Uh, but it was a good uh, a good experience. A missed opportunity, but a good experience. Would you consider that to be a quote unquote happy accident? Yeah, uh, it, it was good. Like we got uh, our friends and family uh, involved early on and they rallied uh, to support us. Um, but that's how I realized how difficult it was going to be that you just don't build a great product and then wait for the people to come. Uh, a lot of it has to do on how you reach your consumers. Uh, and uh, this is the topic at hand here uh, on the marketing side. Absolutely. And so reaching the consumers is one of the biggest things that's such a value for direct-to-consumer brands. Um, so we want to talk more about um, when you were first launching the brand, um, we heard that you hired a fit expert to sort of develop the prototype. So what did um, that sort of beta look like? And then how, um, how did you communicate with your consumers to make sure that you were bringing a product to market that you knew was going to resonate? So we had a lot of experience in the Latin American market. Uh, and obviously, the fit and the type of person you're selling to is different uh, than the person in the States. So that's why I hired a fit expert here in the States that had worked with them before because they knew the U.S. market. So I wanted to get it right from the get-go for this market. And that's yeah. what we did essentially. Uh, and then uh, because we have the factory, um, it was easy to iterate because you can't get it right on the first try no matter who you hire. Right, um, And we iterated and it was pretty simple for us because we have that backend capability. Absolutely. And so then what kind of communication did you have with your target customers during that time? Well, it, it was inviting people to test out the fit uh, and we had a few rounds. Uh, and so that was the way we did it. We did corrections. We also hired a fit model, but I wanted to hear the thoughts from uh, people that I thought would be our target customer as well. So how did you actually engage those target customers and reach them to um, hear their opinions and get their thoughts and collect their feedback on the product? How did you first reach those audiences? In person, you invite them um, and then they do the proper fitting there and you get the feedback, what they like, what they don't like, and then you start just getting data points. Nothing too complex, right? At the beginning, um, you, you get like, I think we got maybe 40, 50 people involved. And then from, from that beta group, um, how did your marketing message come from that beta group? Um, we 
we were hearing how you sort of spent a lot of time on getting the fabric, the fit, and um, like all of those pieces put together. But then how did that all play into your ultimate branding message? So I, uh, in the meantime, that was manufacturing the product uh, and coming up with the brand identity. We hired a branding firm uh, to do all this. And that's how we honed the message. And once we were uh, in these conversations with potential customers, I was getting feedback on what they felt of the message and fine tuning a bit of it. Uh, but we had done a lot of this research pre uh, development of the fa- the denim itself. So I'd love to hear, um, you know, as you were building the business and launching it uh, to the market for the first time, did you have an initial marketing launch plan or what was your approach to getting the word out about Mont and Bao? It was really a disaster on my side. I wasn't <laughs> uh, really... Um, analytical. I had never launched something before. And again, like I really thought build a great product and they'll come. Uh, and boy, was I wrong. So <laughs> it was a very uh, hard first few months on trying to figure out once I saw the low awareness, how to get the awareness out in a cost effective way. So what did you do? What did, what were your first steps to, to, deploying the product um, in a go-to-market. Yeah, back in the day, it was press. Uh, Press was hugely important because you get those spikes uh, from audiences that already trust that publisher. Um, So that was a a great way we got ourselves into Inside Hook, CNBC, live television, uh, and a few others. And that's when I really learned the importance of press. And then we were doing native advertising as well because the one thing about press, right, is you can't really uh, determine when you're going to get the press hit. It takes months of work. Sometimes you're lucky and it takes a few weeks. Uh, But you want to have a more consistent flow. So back in the day, you could do a lot of native advertising, which was uh, paid articles that look relatively organic. And you can still do it. Um, But that was a big route for us. And then we started uh, obviously learning the importance of email and setting up the funnel. And that's when, uh, as well, after the first few months, we started figuring out Facebook, which started becoming uh, the most relevant platform. And how has Facebook changed um, since you started working? Since you started working with Facebook for your brand to now, um, obviously the model for a lot of the Facebook ads has changed. Pricing has gone up. Um, so, what is your strategy there, and how does that work for you the, now? It's still the most effective channel at scale. Uh, the The targeting capabilities are the most sophisticated. Um, and best suited uh, for a digital marketing brand. Uh, But now you have to iterate more constantly uh, on creative. There's a lot of things that need to be done uh, consistently to keep scaling that channel and getting the right ROAS. Um, Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, I think we were uh, in like the golden age when there weren't a lot of brands, uh, especially incumbents that were on the platform. So we were lucky sure. there that we could maximize. I remember back in the day, like I kept seeing the same five to eight brands and we were one of them. Uh, 
and obviously it has to do with retargeting and all a lot of that. But uh, nowadays, the, you're competing against everyone in the feed. So true. And the value of the targeted message there is definitely making an impact. So um, speaking of your message, um, so we were here talking about just um, how you shifted from selling just menswear to womenswear as well. Um, so how did your marketing message shift to accommodate the addition of that demographic? That was in a way um, not that complicated, but in fact, uh, in the long term, it it makes things more complicated. So in men's, and it sounds weird the way I said it, but let me explain. In men's, we were all, always focused on simplicity uh, and just delivering premium at a fair price. Uh, and then when we went to women's, we went with the same design uh, mentality and the same type of message. We obviously adjusted it because before it was a bit more masculine and now it had to be in a way gender neutral. So when I say it got more complicated and it, and it, it does in the future, it's because um, you can't have that clear voice like a guy speaking to a guy because it's no longer a guy speaking to a guy. Now it's a guy speaking to a guy and then uh, the woman's side needs to speak to female. So uh, that's how things get a bit more complicated. And I imagine a lot of brands uh, have that uh, situation. Definitely. Um, but the common denominator between the men and the uh, women's wear that you have is um, pricing is kind of at the core of your message. So I'm curious how you landed on uh, the cost of the product. That's something that you um, continuously mentioned. So I'm just curious um, where how you found that to be the sweet spot. So to correct a little bit there, it's not really pricing. It's pricing is a component. I like to think of it as value. Um, and value because you're delivering a premium product at an unbeatable price, right? No one else in the market's delivering at that price point. Um, and so how we got there. So at the beginning, I told you I hated paying uh, premium jeans and I was paying 250 some brands 200 In reality, uh, what we always wanted was to be around 100 bucks, And then I just had to look at the costing structure to be if that was reasonable. But the aim was, can you can you do it for a hundred bucks? And that's how we got to that pricing, and then we did the numbers, uh, and they worked out. Awesome! I love jeans at a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious about so back to sort of the marketing side and how you started to generate awareness for Mott and Bow. You said that one of the first avenues that you uh, ventured out on was through press. And I think that's because there's um, sort of an authentic feel to a product review and uh, the writer has sort of a non-biased opinion about whatever it is they're writing about. And so immediately there's a, already a sense of trust between the reader um, and the writer of the review or of the article. And so, you know, what I'm curious to know from your perspective, Alejandro, is what we have seen from our from our purview um, in affiliate marketing is that there's been sort of a, I don't want to call it a collision, but for lack of a better word, a collision of uh, between affiliate marketing and uh, what is PR. 
And so what we're starting to see is that more and more publishers, uh, traditional publishing houses have made their way into affiliate marketing, um, where more editorial content is coming front and center as an affiliate marketing opportunity. So these are publications like Condé Nast, BuzzFeed, Business Insider. And I'm just curious to hear from your perspective. Have you been able to capitalize on that collision that's happening between PR, affiliate marketing, and and social to a certain extent? We have. And and we started figuring out uh, affiliate really in our second year. Uh, so we only chat about the first year because that's how you asked me how we started marketing. But I soon started understanding the importance of influencer marketing um, through sub affiliates of yours, like rewards. I like to know it. And that was our segue into pitching press through uh, affiliate revenue, right? Because think of it this way, like, they're the ones writing a lot of the content. And in a point in time in advertising, be it Facebook, Taboola, Outbrain, we were sending paid traffic to the publisher's website. Uh, and they weren't capitalizing on those uh, marketing dollars in any way. And so I feel it was a big missed opportunity. And now they're starting to catch up. But in my opinion, they're still far behind on where they should be. And I understand you want to maintain an editorial integrity, um, but you're already writing about these products. Why not seek out all the affiliate possibilities, right? And so I feel the industry is starting to move in that direction, but it still has a long way to go. Like the publishers have such an immense opportunity and say, uh, they could be bringing a lot of ad dollars. And if you look at what's happening with the publishing industry, like you see uh, rounds of layoffs and I'm like, how haven't they figured and scaled affiliate faster? Absolutely. I think that it's a vehicle for them to monetize their business and they should be moving at a quicker pace. Um, and, and actually on the topic of affiliate marketing, there was something that I wanted to ask you. Uh, in another interview, I heard that one of your um, initial ventures was within affiliate marketing. Is that true? Yes, that's correct. Could you elaborate? What were you What were you actually doing? Did you have a startup? Were you a publisher? What you was did your connection? Research uh, in uh, my MBA. Um, the first year, I. Uh, Try doing a Pinterest for clothing, uh, if you will. That's the simplest way to describe it. Uh, but okay. we didn't capture enough users. And as you know, affiliate requires a ton of users. Uh, so we could never get uh, the platform to a significant uh, mass of users. And that's the, the main reason it failed. Well, it sounds interesting. It, it was. Uh, we just... Um, it was a hard thing to crack. And nowadays you even see Pinterest, right? Like they're having a, a hard time uh, and they didn't even go the affiliate route. They went the advertising route. So it's not an easy business. Right. 
Yeah, it seems like you were ahead of your time on influencer marketing. And I wanted to circle back and touch on that as well. I think that you mentioned that you have a strong relationship with reward style and you've driven a lot of customers through like to know it. So how else has influencer marketing impacted your brand? It's been great. Um, Nowadays, if I were to launch a brand, like my largest focus would be on influencer. We live in an era where there's such long tail content creation, you no longer, or at least the publishers, the big ones no longer have the attention uh, from users that they used to. Uh, now you see micro influencers, people engage more with people uh, that they know in a way or... Um, the digital so friendships. Go ahead. The, I was just going to say it's the digital friendships. Yeah. generating that engagement. And I think that you had also previously mentioned just the importance of word of mouth. It's sort of the same model. Well, it's authentic. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, so uh, affiliate, like it's, it's such a big opportunity, both on long tail, uh, the larger publishers, medium, like there's a lot of uh, things to be done in the space. So when you think about affiliate marketing or influencer marketing as, as a component with an affiliate or what has been the most powerful win that the affiliate channel has driven for Mott and Bow? Can you think of an example? The biggest one, um, I think the, the most advanced publisher has been business insider without a doubt. They were the ones uh, that drove the largest scale um, so I'd say that'd be the biggest win. Uh, but if you look at the picture holistically, I would say it's the influencers under, uh, like to know it and reward style. Not only are you getting, uh, the incremental revenue, but you're also getting content that you can repurpose. Yes. The cross promotion. Correct. I did see one of the Business Insider articles actually that talks about um, the try-on portion of your company being such a huge driver of business. And I think that anyone that's ever tried to buy jeans knows that you just don't hit it out of the park the first time. You need to try on a few pairs. So um, that's obviously something that would be really important to your business model, something that your customers are definitely craving. So how has that concept, do you think, uh, changed or shaped your business? It gives us a different angle uh, to market and serves as a talking point when customers uh, are talking to their friends. Um, they usually talk about uh, that component. Aside from the product, uh, that's a service that you don't typically see in the market. So it's a pretty nice differentiator. Um, and it's also allowed us to, um, to serve the customer better and focus on convenience. Because like you mentioned, like denim is hard and there's vanity sizing and there's issues on shrinkages and stretch. Uh, and so that's why it's very hard uh, to get the fit right. Uh, so why not make it convenient for the user? And that's what we're trying to do, deliver the best experience for our users uh, so that it can be as seamless as possible. And I think that's that's core to direct-to-consumer brands is to get as close to the customer as possible so that you can have that feedback loop and and understand, you know, what are their motivations? What do they like? What do they dislike? So I imagine it's probably uh, a great feedback loop for your business. It has been, yes. 
Do you have any stories that you can share about um, any of the feedback that's come through from some of your customers? The funny thing is, um, so the first six months, um, I had the fulfillment operation in my apartment. Um, so I was sending out the jeans and I was receiving them back. Uh, and so some people would write like personal notes, um, just saying, this is great. And thank you. And like, uh, having a customer write back inside, like it, now in a digital age, you know, like those, um, old writing tools and, and forms of communication feel way more authentic. So that was just. Mm -hmm. uh, something that uh, I hold dear uh, in my memories. Yeah. Do you still have those notes? <laughs> uh, no. no? I, I wish I kept them. No. Yeah. Like, I'm not a hoarder. Uh, so, like, <laughs> I, I try keeping things as clean and, uh, and uncluttered as possible. Gotcha. Just thought I'd check in case they're in a memento box somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> So how, how do you maintain those open line, open lines of communications with your customers today? So, um, you know, how do you, how do you make yourself accessible as a brand to them to ensure that, you know, you're, you're providing that customer centric experience to them and getting that feedback? You know, nowadays, uh, getting feedback is easy if you want to get it. Uh, so there's always our email that you can write into. Uh, and then every month we review uh, the suggestions and comments and we have like um, a survey uh, compilation that that we uh, do every month. And then you also have, uh, so we have Yodpo for on-site reviews and that's customers writing, right? The, at the beginning, we would try incentivizing the customers so that we could have some reviews. But nowadays it's organic and it's just, People tell us how they feel about the product, whether it's good or bad. And that's another open way of communication. And does that customer feedback uh, help inform your product development as you as you look to expand product lines? Is that a, a key component of um, you know the consideration of, of your product roadmap? Without a doubt. So because, again, being a direct-to-consumer brand, right, you have access to the customer. So uh, we send surveys out when we're thinking of new products or sometimes product team here is stuck on uh, which colors to introduce. So they'll send out a survey with the products and people will respond. And you have the direct feedback. So there's uh, a lot of opportunity to use that to your advantage. And then, for example, we look at reports. So let's say a product is consistently coming uh, with uh, this uh, issue, let's say. Uh, and so every month we do like a, a count of the categories and then we do a deep dive on the ones like in a Pareto type of way uh, that need to be looked at so that we can continue improving. Yeah, so other than that feedback loop and kind of digging into the reporting, uh, what kind of measures do you take to keep pace with the changing consumer interests and needs? And that could be in terms of the products that you're launching or even just the open lines of feedback that you're, that you're giving your consumers to reach you. Yeah, so we uh, there's trend forecasting that the team does and we're always trying to introduce new products. You don't want to stay with the same... Uh, type of lineup, uh, you want to introduce new stuff that your customers might like. Uh, so that's, that's a, a little bit of that. 
Yes, you guys definitely have a really great selection of staples. So I would imagine that there's a lot of research that goes into coming up with making sure that it's the perfect pieces for closets. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so then we were talking more about um, new customer acquisition. Um, and you obviously know the importance that this drives because it was the second hire for your business. Um, so what about the, um, what's your process for measuring the lifetime value of a customer? And I'm sorry, what is the way we measure it, you asked? Yeah, so just the, the cost of new customer acquisition kind of against the lifetime value of a customer. Um, and how is that? how does that go into, like, how do you look at that? And what's your process for finding that? So we have a platform that used to be called RJ Metrics. They got bought by Magento. Uh, so it's a reporting tool that ties into your database and allows you to do cohorts very easily. So we already have visual reports for cohorts built. And they just get updated. Uh, so there's no uh, further work done there. Uh, and so we're constantly monitoring that against uh, the type of customer, for example, source that they're coming in through, or if they came in through a specific type of discount, like what does that mean uh, for the long term? Um, and then that informs our decision on how much we can spend to acquire each customer, essentially. I'm curious, um, since we talked about the, you know, you expanded into women's wear, um, who is more difficult to acquire in terms of cost? Is it males or females? It is females. Uh, I don't know if the reason is because we already have a bigger database and are more well known in men's, uh, but we always pay a little bit more for females. I guess that would make sense since they hold quite a bit of the purchasing power. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess I'm just curious to know in terms of marketing initiatives, what do you see as the next big thing in marketing? What, what do you think um, is the next big uh, or emerging marketing channel uh, that will enable direct to consumer brands like yourself to acquire customers at scale? Any predictions? Affiliate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love to hear that. And I think that you said something that was very interesting earlier about um, Business Insider is, as a publisher within within the affiliate channel, they're doing it right and they've been able to scale. And um, I think that within affiliate marketing, what you don't often, what what some don't often think of uh, as a channel that can drive customer acquisition with, at scale. Um, the other thing I think that you hit on is that with reward style and like to know it, they're um, helping to drive incremental value and uh, conversions on behalf of brands, which is another area that's not often associated with affiliate marketing, which is incrementality. And the reality is, is that the channel is uh, can be viewed as what I like to call the secret entrance for brands to scalably acquire customers at a reasonable rate. And, um, you know, it's a model where you're paying for outcomes instead of paying for access, like some of these other primary channels, like in paid social. So it's really refreshing to hear your perspective, Alejandro, on uh, the fact that affiliate marketing is a lever that can be pulled, um, you know, in a marketer's toolbox as a primary channel. I agree. Bring me back in three years to the podcast and when then we can discuss <laughs> how big it was for us uh, because I don't want to give it all away at this time. 
Fair enough. So we'll take the crystal ball prediction and and uh, we'll have to do a look back here uh, and see where we net it out. So um, I think, you know, uh, before we sort of wrap up and do a lightning round of questions, which is the fun part of this interview, uh, I'd like to give you the opportunity. Um, tell our listeners where they can find you. So uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, please uh, go uh, in your browser to www.mottandbow.com. That's M-O-T-T-A-N-D-B-O-W.com, mottandbow.com. Okay. Um, I'm starting to sound like like a podcast uh, promo. <laughs> uh, I was about to do like uh, the vanity URL. <laughs> we will I- use this for as an example going forward. Perfect. <laughs> What's All that? Right. We can use this as an example going forward if yeah. anybody else wants to share how they can be found. <laughs> okay, Alejandro. So we want to wrap things up with a lightning round of questions. This is meant to be fun. Um, and usually it's the favorite part of interviews uh, to date. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. I'm going to start. So tell me a direct-to-consumer founder that you admire. It has to be the the Warby and Harry's guys. Like those were uh, kind of like the first ones uh, to conceptualize it the way it is, uh, and they've been on the forefront. What is your favorite product from the site? The black jeans, uh, the J, they're called. Um, they're a left hand weave Italian, super soft. Uh, incredibly comfortable and very nice looking. And for women, the best sold product as well is the, the our black jean. It's a black jean that doesn't fade. It's called Reactive Black Technology, and it's uh, called the Bond. So for all the female listeners out there, I need to get a pair because I'm wearing a pair of faded black jeans. As we speak. <laughs> we're on our way to buy after this. <laughs> what was the last song that you listened to? Boy, that's a tough question. Um, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Miguel Bosé. That's a, a Spanish singer. Uh, so I was just hearing like background music that was uh, relaxing and that was on. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, is it a song to get pumped up for the interview? But no. Relaxing. <laughs> it's relaxing in the background. I was doing some work. Okay. And then would you rather ask for permission or beg for forgiveness? Beg for forgiveness. okay last one what is your favorite cocktail i'm not a big cocktail person uh but if you consider sacapa which is a guatemalan rum uh with a little bit of coke that would be uh my cocktail sounds delicious i need one right about now (laughs) very nice this has been great alejandro thank you so much Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to staying in touch. Absolutely. To our listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of Pep Talks, where we heard from co-founder Alejandro Shaheen of Mountain Bow. Thank you so much. And remember to subscribe. We just spoke with Alejandro Shaheen founder of Mountain Bow about the business of high quality denim at reasonable cost and all the opportunity that awaits brands concentrating energies and resources in the affiliate space. You can check out the full podcast plus many more by visiting us at pepperjam.com forward slash podcasts.